If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 89 to 92 of Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. In the last chapters, we learned of the early life of Demosthenes, the great orator. In tonight's story, we will learn how Demosthenes became a great orator. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 89 Demosthenes, the Great Orator Demosthenes had spoken in the law courts, but he was not content. His great ambition now was to speak in the assembly of Athens. He wished to remind the Athenians of their glorious past. He wished to encourage them to fight against the enemies of their country. His first attempt was a failure. His voice was weak, his sentences long, and before he had finished what he wished to say, the people were laughing and jeering so that he was forced to sit down. As he left the assembly, he was so unhappy that he thought he would never speak to the people again. He walked along the streets, scarcely knowing in his distress where he went. Suddenly, he felt someone touch his arm, and looking up, he saw a very old man who had been in the assembly and had heard him speak. He had seen how disappointed Demosthenes was as he left the hall, 
and he had determined to encourage him. So first he praised the crestfallen orator, saying that his speech had reminded him of the great orator Pericles, and then he upbraided the young man for being so easily discouraged by the laughter of the people. Demosthenes allowed himself to be comforted and made up his mind to try again, thinking that perhaps, after all, he would be able to make the people listen to him. But in spite of all his efforts, he could not hold their attention, and he left the assembly, hiding his face in his cloak, that none might see his sorrow. An actor named Satyrus, who knew him well, followed him home, for he guessed that Demosthenes would be in despair. The orator did not hide his trouble from his friend. The citizens will listen to anyone, even to those who have not studied, rather than me, he said in bitter anger. A sailor with a foolish story will make them applaud, while if I tell them tales of glorious deeds of their own countrymen, they pay no heed. You say true, Demosthenes, answered Satyrus, but I will soon tell you how this is, if you will recite to me some lines from one of our great poets. Demosthenes did as his friend asked, but although he said the words correctly, his voice was dull and his attitude was stiff and awkward. Satyrus said nothing when his friend ended, but himself began to repeat the same lines. Yet would you scarcely have known that they were the same, for the eyes of the actor flashed. His voice rang clear, then sank to a whisper. His body swayed now this way, now that, as he sought to make the meaning of the poem plain. Then Demosthenes understood, as he had never done before, how it was that his carefully studied speeches did not interest the Athenians. He must not only read or recite them, he must act them, so that the things of which he spoke might become real to those who listened. From that day, Demosthenes began to work in a different way. He made one of the cellars of his house into a study, that there undisturbed he might practice his voice and gestures. He stayed in this strange study for two or three months at a time, and lest he should be tempted to go to the theatre or games, he shaved one side of his head, that so for shame he might not go abroad, though he desired it ever so much. At other times, to strengthen his voice, he would go to the seashore while a storm was raging, and putting pebbles in his mouth, 
he would try to make his words heard above the roar of the waves. He also recited speeches while he was out of breath from running up some steep hill. And at home, he would stand before a large mirror to watch his gestures and the expression on his face. And his hard work and perseverance were rewarded, for Demosthenes became what he most desired to be, the greatest orator of Athens. His enemies learned to fear his speeches, his friends to count upon them to aid their cause. Demosthenes was thirty-three years of age when he made his first speech against Philip of Macedon, who now, in 356 BC, invaded Greece. The king would gladly have made an alliance with the Athenians and gained their goodwill, but they, wishing to recover Amphipolis, which he had taken from them, refused to make peace. Demosthenes lost no opportunity to speak against Philip. He reminded his countrymen that the king was not the man to rest, content with that he had subdued, but is always adding to his conquests, and casts his snare around us while he sits at home postponing. In another speech, he told the Athenians that they chose their captains not to fight, but to be displayed like dolls in the marketplace. These and other speeches against the king of Macedon were called the Philippics of Demosthenes, and still today, if someone makes a speech against a special person, Although his name is not Philip, we call the speech a Philippic. Chapter 90 The Sacred War Philip of Macedon began to reign in 359 BC. When he was sixteen years of age, he was taken by Pelopidas as a hostage to Thebes. Here he stayed for three years, reading Greek literature and learning to love it, studying Greek art and learning to admire it. The craft of the war he gained from the great Thebes general, Epaminondas. When Philip went back to Macedon as king, he trained his army in the movements he had first seen used by the Theban troops under their famous general. At this time, a war called the Sacred War was going on in Greece. Delphi, where the Temple of Apollo stood, had been seized by the Phocians, who were led by a bold commander named Philomelus. The home of the Phocians was near Mount Parnassus. In the temple, vast treasures had been stored. These, said Philomelus, should be safe as of old. 
but when he fortified the city and brought a large army of soldiers to guard it, the other Greek states said it was time to interfere, that Delphi must be taken from the Phocians. Philomelus at once resolved to increase his army, but he had no money to pay more soldiers. The Phocians had already spent all that they possessed on the war, and the citizens of Delphi had been so heavily taxed that they could give no more. Money Philomelus must have, so he began to borrow from the treasures of the temple, which he had promised should be untouched. As the war went on, he took more gold, more of the sacred treasure, none of which he was able to replace. When the Thebans and their allies met Philomelus, he and his hired troops were soon put to flight. Philomelus fled alone to the top of a mountain, pursued by the enemy. He must either leap into the awful abyss, or be captured by the angry soldiers. In a moment he had made his choice, and when the Thebans reached the spot where he had been seen but a second before, he was no longer there. But other leaders replaced Philomelus, and they too rifled the temple of Apollo. At length, the Phocians grew so bold that they determined to attack Philip of Macedon, who had invaded Thessaly, and drive him from Greek territory. They forced the king to return to Macedon, but he soon came back with a large army, and the Phocians retreated to the famous pass of Thermopylae. They hoped that Athens would help them to hold the pass against Philip, but in spite of the Philippics of Demosthenes, she did nothing. Alone, the Phocians were not strong enough to resist Philip's attack, and they were forced to surrender. The pass, which the king had long resolved to gain, was in his hand. When the Athenians heard of the disaster, they were dismayed, and when Demosthenes again urged them to take up arms against the invaders, his appeal was not made in vain. In August 338 BC, the united army of Athenians and Thebans marched against the Macedonians and met them in the plain of Chironia, where a great battle was fought. Philip's famous son, Alexander, who was then only eighteen years old, was in command of one of the wings of the Macedonian army. Young as he was, it was his attack upon the sacred band of Thebans that determined the battle. The sacred band fought to the last, and was cut down where it stood. Soon, the rest of the Greek army fled from the fatal field, 
Demosthenes was among the foot soldiers, taking flight with his comrades. On the roadside, not far from the town of Cheronea and near to Thebes, is a tomb where the fallen heroes of the sacred band were laid. Standing over the tomb is the statue of a lion, now partly in ruins, which was placed there as though to protect the bodies of the slain. The victory of Philip at Choronea left Athens, and indeed all Greece, at the mercy of the king, and he treated her well. His chief ambition was to conquer the kingdom of Persia, and the army he meant to lead against the great king was to be made up of Greeks as well as Macedonians. But in 336 BC, before his plans could be carried out, Philip was slain. When Greece heard the tidings, she rejoiced, for now again she hoped to be free. None was more glad than Demosthenes, for he, as you know, had always been a bitter enemy of the king. The orator was wearing black clothes at the time, because he had but lately lost his daughter. When he heard that Philip had been killed, he put them away and clad himself in happy garments, while he placed a wreath upon his head. Only one Athenian was found to reprove the Athenians for their hasty and foolish joy. Phocion, who was both a general and an orator, said gravely, Nothing shows greater meanness of spirit than expression of joy at the death of an enemy. Remember that the army you fought at Cheronea is lessened by only one man. Chapter 91 Alexander and Bucephalus Alexander, the son of Philip of Macedon, became king in 336 BC. The queen mother adored her brave son and dreamed of the great things he would do when he became a man. She did all that she could to awaken his ambition telling him that he was descended from Achilles, the hero of Troy, and bidding him, when he was older, strive to do nobler deeds than his great ancestor had done. One of his tutors called the young prince Achilles, while he named himself Phoenix, after the tutor of the old Greek hero. The Iliad of Homer which tells of the deeds of Achilles, Alexander knew by heart. When he was a man, he always carried a copy with him on his campaigns. It is said that he slept with it as well as his sword beneath his pillow. Alexander might also have been a Spartan boy, so simple was his training. He learned to ride, to race, to swim, but he never cared to wrestle, 
as did most lads of his time. Nor would he offer prizes for such contests at the games which were held each year. When the prince was asked if he would run in the Olympic Games, for he was fleet of foot, he answered, Yes, if I could have kings to race with me. Even as a lad, he was eager to win glory, and when he heard of a great victory gained by his royal father, or of a town that had been subdued by him, he was more sorry than glad and said to his companions, My father will make so many conquests that there will be nothing left for me to win. One day, while Alexander was still a boy, a Greek from Thessaly arrived at the court of Macedon, bringing with him a noble horse named Bucephalus, which he offered to sell for two thousand six hundred pounds. Philip went with his son and his couriers to look at the horse and to test its power. But when anyone approached or tried to mount, Bucephalus reared and kicked and became so unmanageable that the king, growing angry, bade the Thessalians take the animal away. The prince had been watching the horse keenly. And as he was being led away, the lad exclaimed, What an excellent horse do they lose for want of skill and courage to manage him. Philip heard what his son said, but at first he took no notice of his words. But when the prince said the same thing again and again, he looked at Alexander and saw that he was really sorry that the horse was being sent away. Then, half mocking, the king said, Do you reproach those who are older than yourself, as if you knew more and were better able to manage him than they? I could manage the horse better than others have done, answered the prince. And if you fail... What will you forfeit? asked the king. I will pay the whole price of the horse, said Alexander quickly. The courtiers laughed at the confidence of the prince, but paying no attention to them, he ran towards the horse and seizing the bridle, turned Bucephalus so that he faced the sun for the prince had noticed that the steed was afraid of his own shadow as it flitted backwards and forwards with its every movement. After speaking quietly to the horse and petting him, the prince flung aside the mantle he was wearing and nimbly mounted on its back. Using neither whip nor spur, he let the animal choose his own pace and Bucephalus was content to go on a quiet trot. Gradually, Alexander urged him on to a gallop, with a voice and spur. As the pace grew quicker and quicker, the king looked on in fear, lest the lad should be thrown. 
But then he saw that the horse was well under control, and that Alexander had turned and was coming back. He burst into tears of joy, while the courtiers loudly applauded the prince. As he leaped from the horse, Philip kissed him and said, Oh, my son, look thee out a kingdom equal to and worthy of thyself, for Macedon is too little for thee. Soon after this, the king sent for a famous philosopher named Aristotle to teach his son. Alexander was quick to learn, and his eager interest in his studies pleased Aristotle. In after days, when the prince had become a king and was adding kingdom after kingdom to his possessions, he wrote to his old tutor, I assure you I would rather excel others in the knowledge of what is excellent than the extent of my power and dominions. When Philip was murdered, Alexander was twenty years of age, a stripling, Demosthenes said, making light of his youth. But had Demosthenes known the character of the prince, he would not have spoken thus slightly of his years. The orator not only rejoiced when Philip was murdered, but he urged the people to rouse themselves and to throw off the yoke of Macedon. The old days when the Athenians would not listen to Demosthenes were long gone. Now his matchless eloquence could hold them spellbound, even when they refused to be guided by his advice. But in Athens, as in many other cities, discontent had long been smouldering, and fanned by his words, it broke out in a blaze. The young king found he must put down rebellion in Greece before he set out, as he wished to do, to conquer Persia. Chapter 92 Alexander and Diogenes When Alexander marched at the head of his army into Thessaly, not a blow was struck. His presence seemed enough to gain the allegiance of the Thessalians. The king then went to Corinth, where ambassadors from many of the Greek states met him. Young as he was, they chose Alexander to be general over the Greek troops that were to go with the Macedonians to invade Asia. Everyone in Corinth was eager to see the king. From the surrounding town too, the people crowded into the city, that they might look at the young monarch who was going to lead their soldiers on so great an expedition. They did not dream of all that he would do, how he would spread their customs, their language, their culture, over Asia first and then over all the world. But looking at him, they knew that he would be a conqueror. Among those who wished to see Alexander were many philosophers and great men, but one strange philosopher called Diogenes 
showed no interest in the king. Alexander heard of this man, who was said to sit all day in a tub or barrel. As Diogenes did not come to see him, he resolved to go to see Diogenes. He found the philosopher outside the gates of Corinth, sitting in a tub which was placed so that the rays of the sun fell upon him. When the philosopher saw the king and the courtiers who accompanied him, he roused himself from his meditations and looked at the young sovereign. Alexander spoke kindly to him and asked if there was anything he wished. Yes, answered Diogenes. I would have you not stand between me and the sun. The courtiers were indignant at such an answer, but Alexander laughed, and being pleased with the philosophers indifferent to his rank, he said to them, If I were not Alexander, I should like to be Diogenes. Soon after this, the king, believing that he had secured the fealty of Greece, went back to Macedon. In the spring of 335 BC, he hoped to set out to invade Asia. But the wild tribes on the borders of Macedon began to be restless, and the king was forced to subdue these foes near a home before he went to Asia. While he was driving them beyond his borders, a rumour that he was dead reached Greece. If Alexander was dead, it was a good chance, thought the Thebans, to drive the Macedonians from their citadel, and without waiting to find out if the rumours were true, they revolted. Demosthenes tried to persuade the Athenians to go to the help of the Thebans, but although his eloquence moved them, it had not the power to make them act. The Thebans soon found to their cost that Alexander was not dead. He was, indeed, on his way to Greece to punish them for revolting. Outside the walls of their city, he halted so that the citizens might submit, if so they willed. But they, still dreaming of liberty, refused to surrender. Then Alexander attacked the city and captured it with little difficulty. He determined to give the other cities in Greece a lesson by punishing the rebels severely. So he pulled down their houses and utterly destroyed their town, leaving untouched only the temples and a house in which a great poet named Pindar had dwelt. Demosthenes was bitterly disappointed that the Athenians had not sent to help the Thebans. He feared, too, that Alexander would now march against Athens and destroy her as he had destroyed Thebes. But the king only sent to demand that eight of the orators who had done their best to incite the people to rebel against him should be sent to him as hostages. 
Demosthenes would have been among the eight, and he urged the Athenians not to hand their sheepdog over to the wolf. But Phocion said that it would be wise to do as Alexander asked. At length, the assembly sent Democles to the king to plead the cause of his comrades, for he was, after Demosthenes, the greatest orator in Athens. Alexander listened to Damocles and was persuaded to leave the orators in their own city, for he believed that the fate of Thebes would make Athens too afraid to rebel. Of the loyalty of the Greek troops, the king was sure, for were they not going to avenge the invasion of Greece by Xerxes? The king did not mean to return to Macedon to reign. Rather, did he dream of a throne in one of the great cities which he was going to conquer. So before he marched away, he divided his royal domain and his wealth among his friends. Peridicus, one of his friends, was dismayed at the generosity of the king and asked him what he was keeping for himself. Hope, answered Alexander. Then Peridicus refused to accept his share of the king's gifts, saying, We who go forth to fight with you need share only in your hope. Antipater, one of his father's generals, Alexander left in Macedon to look after his kingdom. At length, in the spring of 334 BC, after saying goodbye to his mother, whom he dearly loved, the king marched with an enormous force to the Hellespont and crossed it. The great expedition had really begun.